Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are entering into the third week of a series we've been in called Who Am I? And because I know you love to do this, I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to ask them, Who am I? <laughs> Better yet, why don't you ask them, Who are you? Like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. There you go. Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? Uh, for those joining us for the first time, let me, let me catch up to speed. Um, we did an eight-week series uh, talking about all of the I am statements Jesus makes about himself in the book of John. Uh, and we spent eight weeks looking at each and every single one of those. They started with the words I am. But as we concluded that series on Easter, uh, we, we felt compelled to begin to look at some of the other statements Jesus made, not about himself, but about us. Statements that start off with the words you are. Are as he speaks to his disciples. And thus far, we have looked at two of those statements, both found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light or the lanterns of the world. Uh, if you prefer the GZT, the Generation Z translation, you salty, you fire. All right, you can, you can go with those. These are the jokes, people. This is all I got. All right, dad jokes at 40 years. Here we go. Uh, and uh, so if you missed any of those, you can go back, check them out on the YouTube or the podcast. Today, we're going to hit the third of these you are statements found yet again in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're going to skip ahead to the 10th chapter. If you want, you can turn there in your Bible now. Uh, but as we go there, I want to provide just a little bit of context around these statements because they really will help us frame in what Jesus is attempting to convey to us in this you are statement. Um, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we discover that Jesus has gathered together his 12 disciples as he prepares to send them out on their first missionary journey. This is a bit of a commissioning moment for Jesus. Uh, having watched Jesus now for the last two years heal the sick, open blind eyes, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, he, he looks at his disciples and he begins to tell them that they're going to go out and do some of the same stuff. But as he's telling them this information, he gives a bit of a warning and a disclaimer. He's like, I just want you guys to know as you go out, this is not going to be an easy journey. There's going to be some opposition in the process. In fact, he begins to use language like, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. <laughs> you're like, cool, thanks for that encouraging piece of information. And, but he warns them. He says, you're going to be arrested. Some of you are going to be beaten. Some of you are going to have to answer to the authorities. But in all of this, do not fear, <laughs> which is really easy for Jesus to say. But... And as a disciple, it's a difficult bit of information to receive. And as you can imagine, the disciples are a bit overwhelmed and trying to figure out like, okay, how are we going to do all of these things? And I think Jesus kind of catches their concern in this conversation. And so in the middle of this commissioning speech, he begins to offer some comforting affirmation. And it is in this comforting affirmation part of his speech that we find our third you are statement. Uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, and Jesus says this. Are not two sparrows sold for one penny? Yet not one of them will fall, not one of them will land on the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. One translation says, the Lord knows all of the hairs on your head, which is easier for some than, than others, but that's okay. It says, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. 
In fact, can we just read that underlined section all together? You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I do not believe that these words were reserved for 12 guys a couple thousand years ago. I believe that these are words that every believer, every disciple needs to be reminded of from time to time. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to speak them over us today. So we're going to focus in on this sentence as we discuss a subject that honestly, I don't really spend a lot of time talking about, but every once in a while, we just need to camp on it for a little bit. And that is our value, our worth to God, how much you're worth to Jesus. Uh, in true fashion, full disclaimer, I wanted to title this sermon after a song because you know how much I love to do that. Um, but the retired youth pastor in me wanted to title it with kind of an inappropriate one. I wanted to call it a baby, I'm worth it. Boom, boom, boom. But I thought, no, that's not appropriate. I'm 40. I need to do something more mature now. So uh, instead, we're going to go with a more distinguished song title, and we're going to call this after the season five winner of American Idol, Chris Daughtry, I'm Going Home. I'm Going Home. I'm Going Home. A little Scott Stapp Creed sound. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Uh, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us today, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've preserved these statements and these scriptures uh, for thousands of years to, to speak to the hearts and minds of, of believers that would follow in the footsteps of your disciples. Uh, and today, as we sit in this room a couple thousand years later, I pray the weight and the truth of these words would hit us right in the center of our being. God, that this would be more than noise, more than words on a screen, but it would be an identity that we take on for ourselves, that we recognize our value and our worth to you, our creator. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, and everybody said amen. Amen. So Jesus says you are more valuable than sparrows, which at first glance may not sound like a very encouraging compliment considering we've just learned the market value of sparrows in their culture. We're told here that two sparrows go for a penny. And you're like, I sure hope I'm worth more than sparrows. Like, wouldn't recommend that as a pickup line today if you're trying to find somebody after church, like, hey girl, you're more valuable than sparrows. Like that, that's probably not gonna go well for you. <laughs> but, but what might sound like kind of a backhanded compliment from Jesus is actually an incredible statement of value. If we'll stop for a moment and just consider the weight of the words that he's offering to his disciples here. We've just learned that sparrows are essentially worthless in his culture. In fact, we'll learn later in the book of Luke that five sparrows sells for two pennies. So it's kind of a BOGO situation. If you buy four, you get one for free. Like they're literally that worthless in their society. But after telling us how worthless these birds are, Jesus begins to reveal something incredible about the heart of God. He says, yet even these things that our culture would all agree are worthless, that hold no value, they do to your father. Your heavenly father notices when even a single one of those sparrows lands on the ground. He pays such close attention to his creation that he is aware of something worthless just flying around out there in the sky. I mean, just think about the magnitude of that statement for a moment. God, the creator of the universe, the one who made the heavens and the earth, gave the oceans their boundaries and put breath in our lungs, is so intimately connected to his creation that he gives undivided attention to something that everybody else would consider worthless and a waste of time to pay attention to. It is an incredible statement about the heart and the attention, the affection of God. 
But then Jesus takes it further and he says, now, if God cares so deeply about something that all of us would agree is worthless, how much more do you think he cares about you? How much more valuable do you think you are to the father than a sparrow? To which we and the disciples are all supposed to reply, probably a lot more, like heck of more than a sparrow. He probably cares really deeply about us. And that is exactly what is, he's attempting to convey here in the statement. But, but I believe these words take on even greater weight when we recognize the disciple that is penning them to paper. This is written by a guy named Matthew. And, and I think it is significant that Matthew is the only disciple among Jesus' 12 to record this particular detail of the speech this day in his writings. Significant because of who Matthew was. Remember, before these guys were disciples, every single one of them had a different occupation. They were fishermen or business owners. One guy was a political revolutionary, but not Matthew. No, no Matthew had perhaps the most disdainful job among the disciples, one that probably brought some tension as Jesus called him into the crew and one that honestly probably carried with him even into the first couple of months or years as one of the disciples in this circle because Matthew was a tax collector for Rome. In biblical times, as in current, no one liked tax collectors. Sorry if you work for the IRS today, but come on, you knew what you were signing up for, all right? Like, not, not a really exciting occupation that everyone around you celebrates. And, and the Jews especially hated tax collectors because if you were a Jew living in a Roman-governed society, the tax collector could charge you whatever they wanted to charge you, and you had to pay. Uh, Rome had a base rate tax. It was, they were responsible for collecting. But the tax collector could charge you anything they wanted beyond that tax rate, and you had to pay it. In fact, that's how the tax collectors make, made a living. They would inflate the taxes and line their pockets with the extra money they tacked on to the base rate of Rome. But, but Matthew was no ordinary tax collector. Matthew was a native Jew turned Roman tax collector. He had defected to Rome and now he was oppressing his very own people with taxes. And if you were a defector to Rome and an oppressor of your people, you were hated in their society. This was the cardinal sin. Nobody would have forgiven him. In fact, he would have been considered a traitor by the people, hated by his own family, and an apostate to God. No one in the Jewish community would want anything to do with a tax collector like Matthew. But Jesus saw something that everybody else didn't see. Jesus saw past the label and the societal rejection and the worthless feelings of a tax collector. And he said, Matthew, I know you don't see this in yourself. I know that others may not even see it in you, but I see something in value in your life. I am calling you. Yes, your failures and all, your worthlessness and all, your trading and all. I bring you into this circle of intimacy with my disciples because I'm going to turn you into something greater than you could even imagine. And so it's no wonder that Matthew latches on to these words more so than any other disciple. To hear, you are more valuable than sparrows from a guy who had no value and no worth would have been a reminder of that day where Jesus locked eyes with him and said, I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. I see value. I see worth. I'm going to invest in you. And I believe today, if we have ears to hear and a heart to receive what the Spirit of God would say to each and every one of us, we could have a similarly impacting moment with Jesus today. 
where we could hear these words with a fresh perspective and a fresh lens and understand that there's some value in our lives. Because here's what I know. I know that I'm standing right now in a room full of Matthews. Not that your name is Matthew or that you've collected taxes before. Maybe you have. But I know that I'm standing in a church full of people that know what it's like to feel like I've been rejected, I've failed, no one wants anything to do with me, I, I, I cannot approach a holy God with my unholy lifestyle, but like Matthew, there was a day, come on, when Jesus locked eyes with you and he said, son, daughter, I know you don't see this in yourself yet, I know you don't see what I see, but I'm here to speak value and worth, you are costly to me, you are worth more than many sparrows, and so I'm calling you in to become one of my own. That's the church we're a part of. That's my story. That's your story. Come on, where are all my ex-ratchet turning righteous people in the room today that remember what it was like before you met Jesus? Yeah. Welcome to the team. But, oh, there's people that are screaming over there. <laughs> they heard it too. But, but here's the thing that we need to remember about value. There's an old saying, and maybe you've heard this before. And at first it might sound offensive, but I think we need to sit with the weight of these words for a few moments and consider how they apply to this scripture. Uh, the statement goes like this. Value is in the eyes of the beholder. In other words, two people could look at the same thing and one might see something costly and expensive and another see, see something cheap and worthless. They'd be staring at the same object, but they have a different perspective. We could all be looking at the same image in the mirror, but have a different perspective of its value, which means that when it comes to our value and our worth, perspective is probably everything. As we've reminded ourselves of every single week in this series, the thesis, ultimately all of us will live according to our perceived identity. We will live according to our percep perception. So it really doesn't matter if I don't see any value in my life, it doesn't matter what Jesus says or what Jesus sees because I'm only gonna live according to what I see. And so what I wanna do in the remaining moments that we have together is I wanna take on an incredibly difficult task if I could. I would like to attempt, if I can do so in the next 20 minutes, to get all of us to see what God sees in us. Because here's what I know. I know that there are probably people sitting in the room today that are living undervalued lives, that are living a cheap lifestyle because you don't see what God sees in you today. But if you could catch a glimpse of how valuable you are to God, it would elevate your life and you would live accordingly because you would understand your worth to your creator. So I would like to attempt as best I can to reveal value to each and every single one of us. For that, we are going to carry our sparrows into an Old Testament narrative, uh, one that many theologians have called the second most significant story in all of Scripture, second only to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is found in the book of Hosea. Uh, we're probably not going to have a lot of note-taking opportunities today, so fear not. You don't have to open up to your Bible. I will provide a narrative for you. But here's the backdrop of this story. The year is 715 BC. Uh, the people of God, the Israelites, have spent a significant amount of time turning their backs and walking away from the God who delivered them from Egypt. After he brought them into the promised land and gave them a spacious place and peace all around, 
they have begun to embrace the gods of the foreign nations surrounding them, the pagan gods of Molech and Baal. And in fact, some of them have turned their backs so far that they're sacrificing their own children in the fire to these other gods. And time and time again, the Lord has sent prophets to warn his people to repent and told them if they don't, they're gonna find themselves back in slavery or, or, or back in the hands of the Babylonians. But time and time again, they ignore the warnings of God and they continue to live in rebellion. And so God, in this desperate attempt to display his love to his people, he solicits the help of a prophet by the name of Hosea. And he asks Hosea to do something relatively scandalous. He comes to Hosea one day and he says, Hosea, I want to display my love to my people and I'm going to use you to do it. And here's how I'd like you to do it. I want you to marry a prostitute. Not like a retired one that just got saved last week in church, but like an active one. She's down there doing her thing right now. I want you to go and marry her. And by the way, after you get married, she's going to continue to live this life. She will continue to sell herself off day after day. In fact, Hosea, she's going to conceive children from other men, some illegitimate children. And I want you to raise those children as your own in your home while she's out there prostituting herself. And through this twisted, dysfunctional, Jerry Springer marriage, I am going to display my love to my people. And despite the insanity of this request, Hosea does it. He goes down to the part of the city where no prophet should ever go, and he finds himself a wife, a woman by the name of Gomer. <laughs> Rough name, for sure. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it if you're trying to find a baby name right now if you're pregnant. Like, how about Gomer? Not anywhere there in the top 10 list, for sure. No offense if your name is Gomer today. But the name is all the more unfortunate when we learn what it means in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, the name Gomer literally means complete failure. You're like, gosh, what kind of messed up parents going to name their kid complete failure. Well, the scripture tells us her dad's name was Diblum, which means fruitcake. So there you go. Good names don't really run in the family for, for Gomer. And, and so Hosea marries this complete failure of a woman and he brings her home to care for her as his bride. But in a surprising plot twist, he actually begins to fall in love with her. This is not just a command from God that he's following. He's, he's becoming affectionate for Gomer. He gets to see past her past and recognize that even in her failures, he, he still has affection and he doesn't withhold intimacy from her. And he, he wraps his arms around this broken woman and speaks kindly to her and speaks life over her. And yet, despite his best attempts, his love is not reciprocated. As the Lord promised, Gomer continues to live up to her name. Night after night, she leaves the house and she finds herself in the arms of other men while Hosea stays at home. And the scripture doesn't speak to this, but, but I would have to imagine that this is devastating for Hosea. She was not just some prophetic object lesson to him. This was his wife. This was his bride. This was the woman he loved. And again, creative liberty here, but I can't help but wonder if maybe there were nights where after they went to bed, 
Hosea heard Gomer get up and begin to make her way out the door and he just would plead with her to stay home. Haven't I shown you how much I love you? Haven't I proven to you that there's value here in this house? You don't have to go out and do this. Just stay. But night after night after night, he watches his bride walk out that door and find herself in the arms of another lover. Not spitefully, not maliciously, not because you know, she wasn't getting treated right and she had to go find another man. None of those things. Almost compulsively. Like she couldn't help it. Like it's what she was destined to do. Because ultimately that's what all of us do when we don't truly understand our worth. When we don't understand our value. We sell ourselves off for far less than we're worth. When you don't know your value, you will sell off your purity for momentary pleasures. When you don't know your value, you will discount your standards to the first one who says, I love you and I can make you happy, even though you know that that is a lie from the pit of hell and they're not telling the truth. When you do not know your value, you will auction off the call of God and the plan of God on your life for a higher paying job or the next position or another opportunity because you think that that's the way to greatness, even though it'll take you out of the house of God and the community of God on Sundays that help bring you out of the pit in the first place. When you don't know your value, you will sell off your sobriety for reprieve. You'll sell off your integrity for advantage. You will sell off your future for the present and you will even sell off the people you love most for momentary pleasures with sin. Because that's what we do when we don't know our value. And that's the case for Gomer. It did not matter that Hosea spoke life over her. It did not matter that she was loved and, and she was valuable to him. To her, all she saw was a broken girl on the street corner that was worthless. And because that's all she saw, that's how she lived. Because we will live according to our perception. But then one day something happens. Gomer leaves to do what she's always done, but she doesn't come home. Days turn to weeks and Hosea begins to wonder, is the bride I love ever gonna make her way back to the house? And just about the time he's ready to give up on all hope of her return, God comes once again to Hosea and he asks him to do something unthinkable. We pick it up in Hosea chapter three, and it says this. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover, even though she's failed, even though she's forsaken the covenant, even though she continues to go out and give herself to other men, go love her again. For this will illustrate that the Lord still loves his people. Even though the people turn their back to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back. And then I said to her, you shall live in my house. This is insane. <laughs> Are you kidding me? How, how could God ask Hosea to do this? After all Gomer has put him through, after the pain, after the trauma, after the rejection, go and love your wife again? Oh, and by the way, I want you to buy her back. 
Theologians will tell us that this detail in the story reveals to us that when Hosea found Gomer, she was literally standing on an auction block being sold off to a man for the night. And the Lord tells Hosea to go back and buy his wife who should already be his in the house. Pay for what should already be yours. Are you kidding me? Could you imagine this as a husband, as a wife, as a spouse? I want you to go, leave your house, buy your spouse back, even though they're being sold off for the night. This is insane. How could God ask Hosea to do this? Well, he tells us how right here in the text. The reason God could ask Hosea to go buy Gomer is because that is exactly what God does for us. When we find ourselves selling off our value because we don't see it, he buys us back. He says, this is all an illustration to display my love for my people. See, just as Gomer has an interesting name, so does Hosea. Hosea's name in the Hebrew literally means salvation. It's the same name that God gave to his one and only son who loved the world, Jeshua. The Lord is my salvation. So when God tells Hosea to go buy Gomer, he's not just sending some random guy to go buy some random girl from downtown. He is making a prophetic statement with his actions that should resound throughout the timeline of scripture and into the room this morning, that when it comes to the broken and the failed in the room, salvation redeems failure. Salvation buys back failure every single time. When we find ourselves on the block of failure, selling ourselves off, he does not stay at a distance, but he rushes to where we're at and he buys us back. In case you haven't caught it yet, this is not just some story about a prostitute and a prophet. The reason that the theologians believe it's the second most important story in all of scripture is because this, in fact, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that brought all of us together this morning, that when creation turned its back on a loving God, when they went out there and found themselves in the arms of other lovers, of promiscuity and perversion and greed and self-promotion and all the wickedness of this world, our God did not stay comfortably in his house and wait for shame or guilt to bring us back, but salvation. Salvation left heaven and it came to the brokenness of earth and it found us wherever we were at and said, I will redeem. I will buy back every failure for myself. You're Gomer. I'm Gomer. We're all Gomer. Sorry, the name sucks, but we're all Gomer. And Jesus is our Hosea. He is our salvation. He is the God of Luke 15 that left the 99 to find the one. He is the one who flips the house upside down to find the coin. He's the father on the porch that waits for the prodigal son to come home. He's the God of John 4 that looks at a woman at a well and says, I still see dignity. I still see honor in you. He's the God of John 8 that gets down into the dirt with an adulteress and protects her from the righteous judgment. And he's the God that will chase a prostitute down to the corner. Say, I know you sold yourself off over and over and over again, but I'm here to buy you back. Why? 
Because that coin and that sheep and that son and that harlot is you and me and every single person outside of these doors that has yet to realize we are more valuable to our God than many sparrows. This is the gospel that salvation bought you back. And if you ever doubt your value or your worth, then consider the price that was paid to redeem you. Hosea paid with silver and hay and wine. That's not what Jesus paid with. He paid with his life. He paid with his blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you were bought at a price. Every failure bought back by the blood of Jesus. Every regrettable night bought back by the blood of Jesus. Every time you told God you'd never do it again, but you did it again, bought back by the blood of Jesus. Every bit of shame and guilt and all of it from the past bought back with the precious blood of Jesus. Every missed opportunity bought back with the blood of Jesus. Every failed marriage, every failed parenting moment bought back by the blood of Jesus. Every single time you found yourself selling things off for less than you're worth bought back by the precious blood of Jesus because you are more valuable to your God than some birds you are of infinite value to your creator but it doesn't stop there it doesn't stop there because it didn't stop there for Gomer after Hosea buys Gomer back from the auction block. He looks her in the eyes and he makes a profound statement. He says, now that I bought you back, you're coming home with me. I'm not gonna leave you out here. I've made a house for you. I'm bringing you home. I'm going home. I'm going home. I'm going home. This part of the story messed me up this week. I sat there in my office and I prayed that what I experienced in a few moments in the presence of Jesus would make its way into a larger setting this morning. Because as I sat with these words, I was reminded why we are not called the Father's church, but why we're called the Father's house. I'm going home. It's one thing to rescue somebody from a rough situation. It's another thing to say, you can come and live in my house with me. It's another thing to bring someone into your house versus just bailing them out of a situation that they created for themselves. And Hosea did not look at Gomer and said, I paid off your debts, don't ever let it happen again. No, he grabbed a bride that turned her back on him and said, I'm bringing you back home with me. This word home in the Hebrew, it's the word yeshav. And defined, it means to dwell, to abide, or to inhabit. It's the same word that Solomon uses in 2 Samuel, where he says, I have created a place where the glory of God can yasab, can dwell. It's the same word that David uses in Psalm chapter 22, where he says, the Lord yasabs, he inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 26, where David says, the glory of God has found a yasab to rest, a place, a dwelling to rest. Guys, yasab, it's, 
it's not a physical location. It's not a structure. It's not some place you can go and visit. It is the very presence of the almighty God. It's the place where joy is found and freedom is found and purpose and protection and provision and deliverance. Everything we need is found in the presence of Jesus. We sang about it a moment ago. It's the place where everything changes, where mourning turns to dancing, where sorrows turn to joy, where everything shifts in one moment because you are in the presence of Yahshua. That's the Holy One with you. And this is the presence that Hosea brings Gomer back into. Not a structure, but the presence of the Almighty God. As it pertains to sparrows, the place where her true value is discovered. Because if value is in the eyes of the beholder, then our truest value is discovered in the presence, in the house of God. And so here's how I would like to conclude this morning. In light of that revelation, I want us to spend a few extra moments in the presence of Jesus today. I've intentionally whittled down this sermon, not because I'm lazy and it was my birthday this last week and I didn't want to study as long, but because I believe in the next couple of moments, as we invite the presence of Jesus once again into this room, that there will be transformative moments for people who need to be reminded of their value. I feel like even as I'm saying this, there are people here this morning who think that you're valuable to God because of what you do for the church or what you do for the kingdom. And God would say, your value is not based on what you do. That's not how your merit works. Your value is based on who you are, not what you do for me. I believe, I believe there's gonna be moments where insecurity melts off, where performance melts off, where those who maybe have been through a a few rough relationships and are starting to think that, gosh, I just, I must not be all that valuable. Your father, your creator is going to speak some words of life over you today. If you have ears to hear and a heart to receive, I think some things are going to shift. And so here's how we're going to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back to the stage. And we're gonna go back into that last song we sang just a moment ago, specifically the second verse of that song where it speaks to our worth and our value and God buying us back. I would say coincidentally, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do coincidences. This song was already on the set list before I was about to call and ask them to play it. (laughs) So clearly the, the Lord had an agenda today for each of us. And here's how I'd like all of us to respond. If you wanna stand, you can stand and worship. If you wanna sit, you can sit. If you want to come down to the altars and kneel and hang out with Jesus, you can do whatever you want to do, but you can't leave. I'm locking the doors. We're holding back the donut holes and the coffee, all right? Because even if you're like, no, I feel pretty good about who I am and where I'm at, and I'm I'm good, I'm secure. Well, you know, David preached a couple of weeks ago about the power of a group of people lifting up the name of Jesus and how it can invite the presence of God into a space. And maybe it's not for you today. Maybe it's for that jailer. Maybe it's for the other people around here. But you can make a place for the presence of God to speak to some some gomers in the room that need to be reminded that even in their failure, Jesus buys them back. And I need your song. I need your worship today. But before we we sing, I do want to take just a brief moment. and, And I do want to intentionally invite 
maybe a Gomer who's never been to the house before to find themselves in the presence of Hosea, their salvation today. If you need to give your life to Jesus, I'm gonna make space for that right now. If we could bow our heads before we worship and say this, if you're far from, from your salvation, if you've wandered around out there and you need to come back or maybe you've never been purchased for the first time and you're hearing the gospel, I wanna invite you to pray a very simple prayer of commitment with me this morning to give your life to Jesus. The words of the prayer don't matter, just the posture of your heart does. And, and hear this, your Savior is inviting you home today. He's inviting you home. If that's you and you need to pray that along with me, would you just slip up a hand and say, Tim, I need to come home to Jesus this morning. I got you, bro. Yeah, both of you guys right there. Thank you. Yeah, right here, miss. Awesome. Yeah, right here, bro. Awesome in the back. Yeah, got you over here. Cool. Yeah, right over here. Awesome. Wow, a lot of people at a nine o'clock service. Hallelujah. All right, as a family, we're going to pray this prayer out with, uh, with those making this decision. Everyone say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for me. I choose to follow you. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to be your disciple and walk in your ways from this day forward. And convince me that I'm valuable. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We'll celebrate with those who made that decision. Come on, that's awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.